Well, let's open up our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 46, as we are continuing our systematic survey of the entire Bible, chapter by chapter, book by book. We find ourselves in Isaiah 46. Isaiah is sometimes referred to as the fifth gospel because of all the pictures of Jesus in the Bible, Isaiah is one of the most clear. The theme of Isaiah is salvation. In fact, sometimes the book of Isaiah is called the Little Bible because it has 66 books, as the entire Bible, as we have it, also has. And it happens to be broken down in the same way as the Old and New Testaments are. 39 chapters seem to form the first half of the book of Isaiah, as 39 books make up the Old Testament, and then 27 books make up the second half of Isaiah. It's a very different feel to them. kind of matches up with the New Testament in further light that's given there. Isaiah 46, we are looking at the comfort that the Lord wants to see to it that his people have in these chapters 40 through 66. And in particular, in 46, it's a comfort that's aimed at those who are going to be finding themselves in captivity in the future. That's not very comforting to know that your country is going into captivity. But the Lord is going to speak to those people who are going to go into captivity and also those who are going to find themselves in captivity and give them a chance to do what they hadn't done before, which is look to his word, believe what he's saying, rather than the circumstances. You know, they're going to go into captivity because of their gross idolatry. You know, they fell into idolatry very, very heavily. And so after all of God is pleading for them to turn away, they didn't. And so it's as if God said, okay, you want idolatry? Here you go. You know, you want idolatry? You want to be an idolatrous pig? Okay, welcome to the mud. You're going to Babylon where there is just overflowing idols. So that's where they found themselves. The comfort that is issued in 46 is that the Lord is going to say there's going to be a fall of Babylon's idols. Babylon's idols are nothing, he's going to say, and don't get distracted by them. So chapter 46, verse 1 says, Bel bows down, Nebo stoops. Bel and Nebo were two of the primary pagan deities that were worshipped in Babylon. Bel also goes by the name Baal, B-A-A-L. He was kind of the god of power, the top dog. He had a son, Nebo. Uh, he was the god of wisdom. Also, Ishtar was worshipped in Babylon. Anyways, the Bel and, and Nebo, they were worshipped in different parts, different places in the city of Babylon. In an annual New Year's Eve recognition or New Year's celebration, they would take out these statues of their gods and make a processional to a place where they would have some divinations for the next year. And so he's sort of speaking towards that with the idea of they're also going to be unable to keep themselves out of captivity. Bell bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols were on the beasts and the cattle. Your carriages were heavily loaded, a burden to the weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They could not deliver the burden but have themselves gone into captivity. So here's, here's the picture of the gods that are, you know, vaunted and exalted in Babylon, and they have to be carried by the animals. And it's a hard job for those animals. They have to carry these big lumps of rock, metal, that are worshipped as gods, and ultimately they can't get the gods out of the way for the coming captivity and it's just a very, very sorry picture of a God that can do nothing. 
can't move himself, has to be moved by some animal on a cart. That's an important tip, right? If you have to carry your God, you got the wrong kind of God. That's one of the Lord's main points here. Because verses 3 through um, 7, he draws direct parallel against that. He says, listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been upheld by me from birth. Notice the contrast. There's Bel and Ebo, big old chunks of inanimate mass sitting there, have to be drawn somewhere, and then here's God. Here's the Lord of Israel saying, I'm carrying you. You have been upheld by me from birth, who have been carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I am he, and even to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear. Even I will carry you and will deliver you. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we should be alike? They lavish gold out of the bag and weigh silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith and he makes it a god. They prostrate themselves. Yes, they worship. They bear it on the shoulder. They carry it and set it in its place and it stands. From its place it shall not move. Though one cries out to it, yet you cannot answer nor save him out of troubles. Idols, um, stone or precious metals. Um, again, you know, he, he draws a comparison between those dead things and himself. Look at what they're doing. They are crying out to it. They are also prostrating themselves before it. Um, and yet, for all of their devotion to that, it says, verse end of verse 7, it can't answer. And it's not going to save you. Um, okay, there, there's really kind of two ways of thinking about these idols that he's talking about. Two ways of thinking about how the people who are committing idolatry view the idols. And we've got to talk about both of them. Some would see the, uh, the actual statue as the deity itself. Whether you've carved it out of stone and then covered it with precious metals or you fashion it completely out of precious metals, doesn't matter. God points out the ridiculousness of saying that that entity, that block of thing, is a god. It can't do anything. It's dead. It's inanimate. And you say, well, they might be a little more sophisticated than that. Some might see the statue as a reminder of their deity, that it's a helpful tool to remind me of the spiritual truth that I am worshiping towards that God, but that, that chunk of metal, that chunk of stone, as beautiful it is, isn't at the actual God. It reminds me of them and encourages me in worship. It gives me a sense of peace. Well, you know, that's not a whole lot better, is it? The New Testament and Old Testament both talk about the reality that there are no spiritual realities behind that chunk of metal. At best, it's a demonic entity behind there. If there's any spiritual activity coming forward from that worship at all, it's demonic activity. And, uh, you know, at worst, you're just wasting your time. Then nobody's listening. You know, in, in some ways, we encounter some of that in our Western circles, you know, there are religious traditions that encourage the making of statues and icons, and they say, well, I'm not worshiping those things, even though, you know, I've got a statue of so-and-so. I know that that's not so-and-so. That just reminds me and, and brings that blessing to me, you know, of thinking about that spiritual person, whatever. But look, The idea of strengthening us spiritually and bringing us encouragement towards worship and peace doesn't belong to a statue. It belongs to the Holy Spirit and to the Word of God. 
And when we, when we shift those things that uniquely belong to the Holy Spirit, to the Word of God, and understanding His Word, and a living relationship with God towards a statue, even if you know, you're not saying that's the, the thing I'm worshiping, that just reminds me of it, still you, you've shifted it away from God towards something that man has made. And you, you've given a stamp of approval to a man-made religious system that says that's okay to do. So that's still a huge mistake to do that kind of stuff. You know, he says here um, in verse 5, he says, who, who are you going to liken me to? How are you going to make any sort of representation of me? Remember, they, they fell into idolatry and they went into captivity after hundreds of years of being drawn by the Lord but refusing it and getting deeper and deeper into sin. They finally had to go into captivity. And with, with them being in Babylon, you know, it would be, it'd be very tempting to want to have a statue that way or something. And God says, don't do it, don't do it. I mean, think of the impossibility of representing God with a statue. <laughs> you know, you think about God as spirit, infinite spirit. And so what he is, what that means is what he is here with us right now, he is in every place with, with everybody around the world. And so what is the image you're going to carve to represent that? I don't know. You can't carve one. It's impossible. And in fact, God says that, right? In the commandments, don't make any image. Don't try, even try to make an image about me. You can't do it. And um, you can't make an image. You know, in reality, if we make any sort of image... um, Whatever likeness we might choose, it's going to be less than God, isn't it? And um, in fact, it's even going to be less than me, because if I made it, it's less than me. So wow, how far down have we come when we've done that? We have lowered God. I mean, just, just, he says, don't do it. So idols are worthless. And uh, you know, they're more than that, too. Uh, when we were in the book of Psalms, um, he warned us about the dangers of idolatry um, in some wording that's just kind of like this. In Psalm 115, it says, um, 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 it says, Our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they don't speak. Eyes they have, but they don't see. Ears they have, but they don't hear. Noses they have, but they don't smell. They have hands, but they don't handle. Feet they have, but they don't walk. Nor do they mutter anything through their throat. And then here's the, here's the spiritual dynamic that goes with it that needs to be noted. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. And so uh, you become like what you worship is what it's saying. And so uh, when we lower God to some sort of image, we've really made a huge, huge error reducing God to something that he is not. And when we get into that kind of mistake, that kind of idolatry, we become like what we worship. So um, God is saying, don't do it. Verse 8, he says, Remember this and show yourselves men. Recall to mind, O you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. 
for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasures. Uh, Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country, indeed I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it, and I will also do it. Um, so, again, this is this is aimed at the captives in Babylon. He wants to see to it that they, um, though they have been brought to captivity and they've been instructed by Jeremiah to go ahead and make themselves at home in in uh, in captivity. Jeremiah twenty nine. Go ahead and, and accept this as your light, your lot in life right now. And yet he's saying to them, okay, there's coming a time when I'm going to come and get you out of there. And none of the idols are going to do anything. In fact, he says, I've got somebody already planned. And we looked at that when you guys were in the last chapter, chapter 45, talks about Cyrus. These prophecies of Cyrus, which is referred to in chapter 46, 11, and then also named by name, chapter 45, verse 1. These are about 100 years before Cyrus is even born. And yet he's going to be the one who comes in, conquers Babylon, and then sets the captives free in about 539 B.C. And the comfort there is that, look, the Lord has this in hand, and he has you in hand. Though you are where you don't want to be right now, uh, still, look, the Lord is carrying you, and you need to rest in that, and you can rest in that. And... um, uh, he's saying, you know, my, for all my purposes, I've told, the, told you about this long ago. And so just rest in, in that, in, in, in my assurances of your, um, your deliverance in the future. Uh, you know, I think of the verse uh, Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 27 that goes with this. This whole image of dead idols that have to be carried versus the living God who will carry you through this trial. 33.27 says, The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Uh, you know, that's a beautiful promise made to them. And, uh, uh, you know, that, um, you know, I, I, I think there is some lessons there for us. Because we can end up in places where we don't want to be. Uh, that's, that's very much our lot in life. Uh, you know, we make straight line extrapolations of where we're going to be in 5, 10, 15 years and we plan for it and stuff, but life's not straight line, is it? It's full of all kinds of irregular turns that are unexpected that we don't want. And uh, it's very few people that, that make it through on a straight line projection. Most of us end up somewhere where we don't want to be in, in some time in life. And, uh, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe that's happened to somebody. And, you know, like the Israelites, it was your doing. It was because of gross disobedience that you ended up there. Well, you know, just like the Israelites, it's a time for repentance and time for reflection, time for refocusing, time for putting out the stuff of our life. That's a good thing. That's okay. That's exactly the purposes for which you are there. That's okay. Rest there and in that place and refocus. Become familiar again with the Lord carrying you through these times. And you've got to know the Lord's going to get you out. He's going to get you out the way he gets everybody out of trials, and that is through you just obeying him. And in his time, 
he'll get you out. It might be that we're in trials or in a place we don't want it to be just because life handed us that. And we don't want to be there. But, you know, um, we can know that God's purposes for us, he hasn't made any mistake, he hasn't lost track of us. Um, you know, we had our affection set on this, but we got that instead. That's okay. It's hard, but look, we can draw comfort from the Lord knowing that he's carrying us completely. And, and that's not a bad thing, right? Becoming intimately familiar again with that realization that God is carrying us. He really is carrying us. He really is, day by day. We just don't keep ourselves all that familiar with it, do we? I mean, we kind of slide easily into the trusting us of stuff. And, the, you know, just the regular program that we're in, we think we're going to be okay because of that. Well, no, we're not going to be okay because of that. We're going to be okay because God is carrying us. We get into those places and that becomes real to us again. And you get out of those things and you, and you look back and you go, how in the world did I ever make it through that? You realize, that's only because God carried me through that. So, um, I think there's a lot of comfort for uh, us. There was a lot of comfort for them out of these, these texts. Let's go to verse 12. Listen to me, you stubborn-hearted who are far from righteousness. I bring my righteousness near. It shall not be far off. My salvation shall not linger. And I will place salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. In other words, that's the plan. The plan is to bring salvation for the whole world. It's going to come out of Zion, Jerusalem. You bet on it. Don't bet against it. That's a bad bet. And uh, uh, he's going to accomplish that. And so those sitting there going, is this all over for us? There's Lord saying, nope. In fact, look at the, I like, really like the power of what is loaded in the last verses, the last sentence of that chapter. He says, I will place salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. If anything Israel wasn't at that point, it was his glory. You know, I mean, think of what a mess they had made and how embarrassing it was to be where they were. And yet God says, no, you are my glory and you're going to be there again. I love the power of that and the promise of that. Chapter 47. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Okay. Um, Chapter 47, uh, he was speaking to the captives in Babylon, and it's almost like God's got an audience of about three or four different things here. He's got his people in captivity... He's got um, the idolaters of, of Babylon. They're, they're going to be kind of personified here as a woman. And then he's also got the dead idols. He talks to them occasionally and mocks them. Um, and so here he is. He's talking to, again, the, the um, nation of Babylon kind of personified as a woman. Come down, sit in the dust, virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on, a, sit on the ground without a throne. O daughter of the Chaldeans. Now remember the Chaldeans, not everybody in Babylon was a Chaldean. The Chaldean were the priestly class. They were the kingmakers. They were the power center. Deeply occultic, 
deep, deeply pagan, you know, idolatrous. You shall no more be called tender and delicate. You know, the picture is of, of uh, uh, a very uh, powerful princess who suddenly stripped of all of her privilege, all of her position, and she is now just made a common slave. Take the millstones and grind meal. That's what slaves did. Remove your veil, take off the skirt, uncover the thigh, pass through the rivers. You're going on a trek into captivity. Uh, Your nakedness shall be uncovered. Yes, your shame will be seen. I will take vengeance, and I will not arbitrate with a man. Okay, so that's the, the statement to our personified nation of Babylon. And there's something you ought to be a little sensitive to um, as you make a systematic survey of the entire Bible, and that is the, the idiom of this woman. Um, she shows up a couple of times. There's, there's really an idiom of two women in the Bible that you ought to be sensitive to. This is one, the woman who is currently spoken of the Neo-Babylonian Empire, but then there's another woman, also later on, who is uh, uh, also a personified um, representation of Babylon. If you go over to uh, Revelation chapter um, 13, we need to pick up a couple of verses just so that we have a continuity here when we get to Revelation 17. A vision... Uh, of the beast from the sea, chapter 13, verse 1, I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his, his heads a blasphemous name. Okay, one of the beasts. Flip over to 17, Revelation 17. We're going to pick up again the idiom of a woman out of Babylon. Chapter 17, um, verse 1 says, And one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit to the wilderness. I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which is full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. That's the guy from thirteen, chapter 13. The woman was arrayed in purple scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having her in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. Okay, so there's the other idiom. There's a fuller development of a long-term view of that woman coming out of Babylon. Uh, the Neo-Babylonian Empire back in chapter 47 She's um, she's introduced, and, and then in, in some sort of revitalized form again, she shows up. Book of Revelation, um, and uh, if you if you want to study that uh, that woman who rides the beast, I refer you to Dave Hunt's book, uh, A Woman Rides the Beast. And um, but there's another woman you need to be sensitive to in the scripture also, and um, it's actually in Revelation. Um, it's actually in Revelation uh, chapter 12. Um, and and the, the idiom of, of the woman who is the bride of Jehovah shows up not quite as clear as this in Revelation chapter 12. But um, 
She's referred to that way in the Old Testament, the Bride of Jehovah. You remember the book of Hosea? Um, that idiom of the Bride of Jehovah shows up there. Hosea is told to take a, a wife from harlotry, a prostitute, and he's got that whole heartache and that difficulty of her being unfaithful to him. And, and the Lord says, that's like me and my bride, um, the Bride of Jehovah, not the Bride of Christ, the Bride of Jehovah, Israel. And then uh, we see here again here in Revelation 12, it says, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. And then she brings the Messiah into the world, and then she's chased all around by that dragon. And um, so it's just a, a theme you need to be, you ought to be sensitive to that's throughout Scripture, kind of a tale of two women. And... Um, so I wanted to keep you uh, informed about that and keep you uh, sensitive to that. So back in Isaiah 47, again, the Lord speaks to that woman personifying the Neo-Babylon Empire and says, it's all over for you. You're done being a princess. Um, you are going to go into captivity and be a common slave. Okay, so then the other party that's standing there kind of in the, as an audience watching the Lord speak to her says this, as for our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, the Holy One of Israel. And that's, you know, that's, that's drawn in contrast to, um, you know, the, the strength of the, of the Babylonians' commitment to Nebo and Bel, and they're just completely worthless. They're not going to do anything. Totally helpless. Um, nothing there. And then the comfort that the believing remnant who are in you know, of, of all the, uh, the captives, the believing remnant says, we're going to be redeemed, and nothing's going to stop it. Verse 5, Sit in silence and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no longer be called the Lady of Kingdoms. I was angry with my people. I have profaned my inheritance and given them into your hand. Uh, you showed them no mercy, on the elderly, you laid your yoke very heavily, and you said, I shall be a lady forever, so that you did not take these things to heart, nor remember the latter end of them. Um, so the Lord is going to bring charges against um, her. She's going to be punished for four things. Here's the first one, um, and that is that she has overplayed her role. Um, there's been a, a a role that the Lord has handed to Babylon in being the instrument in his hands to chastise and correct his people. But they took it way too far. It says, I have profaned my inheritance, middle of verse 6. I gave them into your hand. You showed them no mercy. On the elderly, you know, the weakest, the most vulnerable, wow, you really, you really put down the smackdown on them. And, he's, and the Lord's saying, I saw that. And so they're going to be they're going to be uh, they're going to be judged for that. Uh, here's the second thing, verse eight, verses seven and eight. Um, you said, "I shall be a lady forever," so that you did not take these things to heart, nor remember the latter end of them. Um, she's proud and arrogant. You, you know, uh, just totally into herself. I'm the best thing ever that's ever been. Verse three. Uh, excuse me. The third thing is going to show up in verse eight. Now, hear. Therefore, hear this now, you who are given to pleasures, who dwell securely, who say in your heart, "I am, and there is no one else beside me. 
I shall not sit as a widow, nor shall I know the loss of children. Again, that's the personification of the nation of Babylon. It's never going to happen to me that I'm going to be wiped out. She considers herself immune from punishment, untouchable. The Lord's saying, no, that's not the case. But these two things shall come upon you in a moment. In one day, verse 9, the loss of children and widowhood, they shall come upon you in their fullness because of the multitude of your sorceries. They are uh, trusting in wickedness of occult practices because of the multitude of your sorceries for the great abundance of your enchantments. If you have trusted in your wickedness, you have said, no one sees me, I can't be detected. Your wisdom and your knowledge have warped you, and you have said in your heart, I am, and there is no one else beside me. Uh, Therefore, evil shall come upon you. You shall not know from where it arises. It's going to come upon them suddenly. They're not going to be able to resist it. Trouble shall fall upon you. You'll not be able to put it off, and desolation shall come upon you suddenly, which you shall not know. Um, Um... Uh, You know, I think in the midst of that, there are some lessons for us. Um, You know, when when the Lord used Babylon, they, um, you know, they gave no thought to the spiritual realities of the Lord at all. And they obviously, very arrogant, overplaying it, thinking that they're untouchable, deep in occult practices. Um, look, when, you know, the idea is that the Lord is using somebody in somebody else's life uh, as his instrument for correction, for, to get their attention. And look, um, you know, that might be one of our roles that we end up playing in somebody's life sometime. The Lord might use us to um, get somebody's attention, to be somebody who brings a word of light and possible correction to somebody, um, someone who's fallen into sin. And uh, if we get handed that role, uh, we ought to do it with a lot of humility and a lot of gentleness. Um, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, instructs us in these things. It says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any tra- trespass, you who are spiritual... Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Um, um, you know, it, it's a, it's a, you know, a bit of self, you know, just self awareness. I'm going to be used by the Lord in this. I need to be very gentle with this person. Um, you know, I think I think the Lord said it this way um, when He talks about picking a speck out of your brother's eye. You know, I, I don't know about you, but, I, you know, I've done a lot of things and, and I can handle some pain. I can, you know, broken finger. I can still go out there and do it and stuff. But don't touch my eyes. <laughs> I'm a baby. And when it comes to my eyes, you know, the whole idea of cataract surgery, forget it, man. I'm, I'm going to be blind before I ever have that. Um, the whole speck in your brother's eye is one of, you know, you, you're going to be an instrument to help a brother get something out of that little thing while you've got this chunk in your own eye. It's very appropriate for us to handle those situations very delicately with a lot of humility and a lot of gentleness. 
uh, which, which Babylon didn't do. Babylon was cruel, and they went in there, and it was all about them, and they got it. Um, I think it's a lesson we can learn in uh, seeing how the Lord could use us and the attitudes we ought to have. Uh, verse 12 and 13, I think, is some divine sarcasm in chapter 47, because they were heavy into sorcery and enchantments, astrologers, and so the Lord says, Stand now with your enchantments and the multitude of your sorceries in which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you'll be able to profit. Perhaps you will prevail. In other words, he says, Hey, why don't you go get everybody who, uh, who, who you know, get all your diviners, all your astrologers, all your occultic practices, and get them all engaged in the same direction, and, and maybe you'll get out of this. Yeah. And uh, you know, I just see it as divine circumstance, uh, sarcasm. In verse 13, it says, you are wearied in the multitude of your counsels. Uh, in other words, you know, when the, the images, while they're doing that, and they're fully engaged and they think they're going to get out of this somehow, you know, the God's down looking at him saying, wow, you, that really looks like a lot of work. Um, how's it going for you, you know? And, and the idea is it's just going to be unavoidable and there's nothing they can do about it, no matter how much hooting and hollering you do. Let now the astrologers, the stargazers, and the monthly prognosticators stand up and save you from what shall come upon you. Behold, they shall be as stubble. In other words, those guys are just going to make it worse for you. They are not helping you at all. They shall uh, not deliver themselves from the power of the flame. It shall not be a coal to be warmed by, nor fire to sit before Thus shall they be to you with whom you have labored, your merchants from your youth. They shall wander each one to his quarter. No one shall save you. Again, speaking to the personification of the nation of Babylon, your judgment is unavoidable. Again, that's comfort to the captives of Israel saying, you know, that this nation that, they're, that they've been um, committed to for their captivity, looks like it's just going to go on forever. I mean, they look untouchable. The Lord's saying, uh-uh, I can touch them, and I'm going to. And you guys just rest. When it comes time to be delivered, they're going to get it. Chapter 48 is uh, now he's going to uh, talk to that future captivity population. And... Um, he is saying, Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel and have come forth from the wellsprings of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and make mention of the God of Israel, but not in truth or in righteousness. For they call themselves after the holy city and lean on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. Um, uh, you know, a lot of titles in there, a lot of very positive things said about these people, about themselves. Um, they have, uh, it says, who are called by Israel. They've come forth from the wellsprings of Judah. They swear by the name of the Lord. They make mention of the God of Israel. They call themselves after the holy city. They lean on the God of Israel. There's a whole lot there of titles they're taking to themselves that sound really good. But the Lord says, uh, but not in truth or in righteousness. Um, and the reality is the ca- most of the captivity most of the people in um, who went to Babylon and made a, a, a home there were apostate. But there was a remnant there that was faithful. 
and he's, he's speaking to them. Um, again, these, these people are, are following the counsel of Jeremiah chapter 29 to make a home there, make yourself comfortable. But these people got too comfortable there. And now they don't really have any taste for the long-term view of what God wants to do with them, which is to go back to Israel sometime in the future and rebuild and be excited about their freedom in the Lord and what the Lord wants to do for them. Yeah, it's going to be some hard work. But um, these people uh, he's speaking to, well, they have, a lot of, they have a lot of positive names for themselves. They're thinking very positively about themselves, but it's pretty inaccurate. Um, and, you know, if I want to draw an application out of this, I think that we could, you know, every, we, as Christians, we all want to be in those places that are those blessed people groups. You know, we all want to be the Church of Philadelphia, the book of Revelation, you know, that little church with little power, uh, clings to his word and to his name. We all want to be, you know, reciting the, uh, find ourselves in the Beatitudes, the poor in spirit stuff. That's an easy thing to say. But is it true? Are, are, are we really Church of Philadelphia Christians? We really, the poor in spirit, do we see ourselves that way? It's easy to take titles to ourselves. But are we really walking in the truth of what God says about us? You've got to agree with a lot. You've got to agree with all that God has said about us. So, um, anyways, he speaks to them, and he says, verse 3, I have declared the former things from the beginning. They went forth from my mouth, and I caused them to hear it. Suddenly I did them, and they came to pass, because I knew that you were obstinate. And your neck was an iron sinew, and your brow bronze. Even from the beginning, I have declared it to you. Before it came to pass, I proclaimed it to you, lest you should say, my idol has done them, and my carved image and my molded image have commanded them. Uh, He reminds them of what he had said long ago about their future. Passages in Deuteronomy. Um, where he says, you know, the blessings and the curses. And the curses follow almost identically, you know, their exact future from the standpoint of Deuteronomy of where they would go. They would fall into gross idolatry. There'd be sieges. There'd be corrections. There'd be all kinds of judgments. And God would never be able to get their attention. And Eventually, he'd just have to take them into captivity. He's saying, look, I told you about this long ago. Because I know that when this happened, you would attribute it to your idols. He's saying, no, 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 I did this. Now he says, verse 6, you have heard, see all this. Will you not declare it? In other words, you're not going to agree to that? Okay, here's something new. I have made you hear new things from this time, even hidden things, and you did not know them. Here's some new predictions for you. They are created now and not from the beginning. Before this day, you've not heard him. I've never said this before. He's saying, lest you should say, of course I knew them. Surely you did not hear. Surely you did not know. Surely from long ago your ear was not opened. For I knew that you would deal very treacherously and were called a transgressor from the womb. Here's what he's going to do. For my name's sake, I will defer my anger. And for my praise, I will restrain it from you so that I do not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake, 
for my own sake I will do it. For how should my name be profaned? I will not give my glory to another. So, um, um, you know, in this, in this midst of the Lord speaking to these people, he's saying, examine yourself. Look at yourself. I'm doing these things, and you can be a part of it. You should be a part of it. Um, don't ascribe it to your idols. Um, you know, I think, I think Paul did this kind of thing to um, some of the people he ministered to when he called them in the Corinthian church to examine themselves. Um, he called it to examine themselves, Second Corinthians 13. Um, he's saying, look, I know you're in the midst of those, these things, but are you really part of the believing body? Are, are you really? Examine yourself very closely. Uh, I think that's a good word. Every, every Christian, every Christian ought to look at that and say, am I? I mean, I... I'm in the midst of a church. I go to church. I, you know, I got my name on the rolls. I give money. I do all those religious things. Am I really in the body of Christ? That's, that's one of the reasons we kind of do some funny things here. We, we don't have any roles to sign up on. We don't have memberships. People are sometimes confused when they come here because there is no membership. And, um, and then they're not used to that. You know, they're used to having to fill out a card and make pledges and things like that. They come here and they're just free to come and go. And it doesn't mean we don't care about you. We care very much about you. But we don't want you to be confused with signing a piece of paper and getting your name on a, on a computer ledger somewhere versus being born again and being in the body of Christ. Because those are two very, very different things. And you can have the paper and you can have the role and never be born again. And that's a very dangerous thing. Um, and so we, we have um, decided that that's the best way to handle that is not have any memberships and not have those kinds of things. So people don't get confused that way. Now, that doesn't, that doesn't mean everybody who does that, doesn't mean every church that does that is wrong. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what we're saying. That's just the way we choose to approach it. Verse 12, listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel, my called. I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. Indeed, my hand has laid the foundation of the earth. Again, the comfort. Draw comfort from this. There's no other God besides me. I'm eternal. I'm the creator. My hand has stretched out the heavens. You know, I'm a bit of an astronomy guy. Like, I'm not a very serious astronomer, but I got a telescope, and I got some pictures and things. And I, I like looking at those things because, you know, I, I see the the astro photos of the galaxies and the nebulas and stuff, and they're just, you know, they're larger than anything I could ever fathom, and they're farther away, and they're they're magnificent, and and I think if if God can do that, what is my life? I mean, He's got me well in hand. If He, what, you know, this this put a matter of scale here. I'm just a dot, and uh, if He can do that, He can handle my life. Same comfort that's coming out of what the words of Lord here, the word of the Lord here. When I call them, uh, my right hand is stretched out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand up together. So all of you assemble yourselves and hear. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall do his pleasure on Babylon, and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. Again, strong promises. God's purposes aren't done with you. 
He's not done with you. You will be delivered and redeemed from Babylon. Yes, I have called him, I have brought him, and his way will prosper. That's an allusion um, to Cyrus. Okay, now think about it this way. Cyrus, you probably not thought about it this way. Cyrus is, in a small way, a type of Jesus. He is. Uh, he's somebody appointed by the Lord who comes and delivers Israel. And in that way, he is a type of Jesus. And in that way, he's talking about him here. He slips almost imperceptibly from talking about Cyrus to talking about Jesus. Because verse 16, come near to me and hear this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. From the time that it was, I was there. And now the Lord God and his spirit have sent me. Well, that's undeniably Jesus speaking firsthand there. The, the one who is the anti-type of all types, the deliverer of the whole world. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you by the way you should go. Oh, that you had heeded my commandments, then your peace would have been like a river, and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your descendants also would have been like the sand and the offspring of your body like the grains of sand. His name would not have been cut off nor destroyed from before me. Uh, you know, Lord's not immune from um, thinking about what could have been. Uh, and that, that's what he's saying here. If you had only listened to me, things would have been so different. And, uh, you know, that's, I think that's very healthy for those who find themselves in that kind of a situation, someplace they don't want to be, it's of their own doing. That kind of personal reflection is very, very healthy to think and to build, again, that resolution to uh, this kind of a commitment to obedience. I'm not going to do that again. Look out, look what I've lost because I didn't obey him. Look how far away from what I could have had. If I had just obeyed him, that, that's a renewed sense of obedience and a, a new sense of consecration towards obedience that is very good. Verse 20, go forth from Babylon. Here's the call that's going out. It's, it's again, for the future captives. This is going to be a time under Cyrus where they're told to leave. Go forth from Babylon, flee from the Chaldeans with a voice of singing. You're supposed to go out and seeing the Lord's hand move and use us again and bring us back to the place where he has for us. You know, for those who are tuned in to, to the promises of God and waiting for them, that would be an awesome day, wouldn't it? We have just been delivered. We're going out. Man, you imagine the party that they would have. Uh, that, would, that, would have been, that would have been fun to see. Declare, proclaim this, utter it to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. And they did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. Uh, you know, that's kind of a reflection on the back. Uh, going back, when they went through the wilderness, he provided for them completely. They are going forth now, uh, you know, out of the wilderness, kind of sort of away out of the wilderness of Babylon. And they're reflecting on how he led them in the past. He's going to lead us again completely. All of our needs are going to be met. We have nothing to fear. He caused the waters to flow from the rock for them. He also split the rock and the waters gushed out. 
There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. And it's kind of like, for those who don't want to go and don't want to buy into what the Lord is doing with them, there isn't going to be anything. They're, They're going to miss out on all of that, all of that freedom, all of that joy, all of the excitement of seeing the Lord bring them and use them. And if they're going to just stay behind in Babylon where they're not supposed to be, there's going to be a total lack of peace. There's going to be wondering where God is. There's going to be a walking away. There's going to be a loss of all of that. And, you know, that's just just what peace is about, right? Peace is about, when you think about when the Lord gives me peace in a situation, what what does that feel like? What does that mean to me? Well, in one sense, you know, of course, the Scripture says, peace that passes understanding, he gives it to you, right? That means that, in some sense, I understand, apart from any of my real comprehension of the event, there are adequate resources to take care of me in what's going on here. Adequate resources. It's kind of a funny way of thinking about peace, but it's real. No matter what happens there, God's got it in hand. It's not about my resources. It's about God's, and God's not limited in any fashion. And so I've got peace about this. But when you're not doing those things and you're not in that place you're not listening to the lord and there's there's not that commitment to obedience what peace do you have i don't know it's a bad place to be in but you know there's always the coming back there always is a repentance there always the signing up again for what the lord wants to do so why don't we end there and then we will go our way tonight let's stand and we'll pray thank you lord Thank you for the examples you've put in Scripture from which we can glean. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the comfort of your Scripture and your promises. Lord, if there are those who do find themselves in that area of needing to turn and be comforted, pray, Father, that you would meet them strongly as they turn towards you, and that you would reassure them and give them peace. Thank you, Lord. We love you, Lord. We love you, Jesus. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.